Well, welcome to Trinity Church. Uh, thanks so much for joining us here. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and we love the Bible because we believe when the Bible speaks, God speaks. We typically work through a books of the Bible, going paragraph by paragraph, basically letting God set the agenda for us. We're not skipping over just uh, finding the passages, DJ, Todd, and I, you know, really... Oh man, we, we really need to go back to that one over and over again. Instead, we're, we're just moving our way through paragraph by paragraph. What, what God says, we say. And we've been uh, going through a study of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, which we've entitled, The Long-Expected, Unexpected King. We, we've learned plenty already about who Jesus is, what he has come to do. But one of the great aspects of God's word is that we can still grow deeper in it. We don't move beyond God's word as in the attitude that I might have with many, you know, dozens of books on my bookshelf that I've read. Thought, oh, all right, that, that's good. Got some good insights, uh, some uh, things I can apply to my life or something of that nature. Re- Want to remember a certain truths. But I set them aside probably don't really go back to them, kind of move on, move beyond them, looking for something new. That's not the attitude we need to bring to God's word. Instead, we should grow deeper in it. As we jump into chapter 13 of Matthew today, you may have heard this parable that we're going to be talking about. You may have heard this, this might be the first time you've heard it, and if so, welcome it's going to be a lot of fun. It, it, this might be the hundredth time, and you could basically uh, tell us the gist of the story without even us uh, reading over it together. But you can still grow deeper in your understanding of it. You can still apply it more thoroughly to your life. God still has truth here that he wants to reveal to you today. This chapter, chapter 13, is filled with parables, and last week uh, Todd launched us in uh, to uh, this uh, study of these parables, explaining the purpose of parables. Uh, They have this very interesting dual purpose of revealing the secrets of the kingdom of God to Jesus' followers, to Jesus' disciples, and hiding those secrets at the same time from the crowds, from those who oppose Jesus. Our passage today is Matthew 13, 1 through 9. Then we're going to skip Todd's passage from last week, kind of mess with you a little bit there, and to go to the explanation of the parable of the sower in verses 18 through 23. If you didn't get a listening guide, you can lift your hand up. Dalen would be more than happy to get you one from the back. If you need a Bible, there should be one in the seat pocket in front of you. And starting off, Chapter 13 here, I I consider this a a fitting place for a chapter break. It it makes a lot of sense. But remember that the chapters and verses aren't inspired, that they were added hundreds of years afterwards, and are are quite helpful. You wouldn't want me to say, hey, about halfway through this Gospel of Matthew, you know, search for the paragraph that starts with, like, that'd be a little bit cumbersome, to, to say the least. Uh, But at the same time, we shouldn't bring the assumption here that 13 verse 1 is 
uh, completely disjointed from the last verse, verse 50 of uh, chapter 12. Actually, uh, 46 through 50 uh, functions as a hinge. It primarily closes off the, the previous uh, chapter, acts as the conclusion of that material, but it also uh, previews and uh, paves the way for our uh, material today. Verse 46 says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And then verse 1 starts that same day. See, see, Matthew wants us to be struck with the connection here. Jesus doing the will of the Father in heaven evidences the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' redefinition of, the, of his family, of the family of God, prepares the way for this explanation uh, concerning the results of the kingdom. So now, well, let's, let's read our passage here, starting with uh, 13, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then skip ahead to verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears that the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Pray with me. Father God, we we come with open hands to receive from you and from your word. We pray that the Spirit would do the work in helping us understand your word, that we would uh, apply it to our lives, that we would leave changed, that this would not just be an academic exercise, 
of uh, filling our brains with more facts, more knowledge, but that we would look more like Jesus through our time here together. We pray this all in his good name. Amen. So, so I find the uh, game Settlers of Catan to be a, a fun game, combines a strategy with a little luck. If, if you haven't played it, I don't have time to fully unpack it. There's many different versions. It, it, way, a little more complicated than a game of Uno, so uh, here goes. But basically, you're collecting ore, sheep, brick, wood to build roads, settlements, and cities to arrive at 10 victory points. That's just the basics of the game. You're going to need all those resources. So common, generally accepted strategies to place your initial settlements and try to build settlements on a variety of resources to uh, so, so that you're getting a little bit of everything. Again, you're going to need all of them. And generally thought that sheep is you know, considered maybe the least valuable, if there is one, of those uh, resources. So I was playing a, a game with a bunch of friends a long time ago, um, and, and I, I thought I was in a good position to winning because I like winning, okay? And I had settlements on a variety of resources, thought it was going to be you know, some favorable numbers as you know, 2 and 12, when you have two dice, are rolled a lot less than, say, a six or an eight. And when scoping out the competition, I, I kind of laughed at this uh, one girl who was on a bunch of sheep. Like, really? That, like, you, all you want is, is sheep? It's probably not going to work out too well for you. Uh, but I was wrong. Actually, uh, my opponent, who was on a bunch of sheep, and even built on a sheep port where you got, could trade two for one, um, actually won the game and it beat me pretty well. I had underestimated her, and in the end, that strategy for the way the board was set up for that game was a very good strategy. She was built on a whole bunch of sheep and just kept getting loads and loads of sheep and kept trading them two for one and could basically get uh, whatever resources uh, she so desired in that game. And it, it produced the, the, the results she was looking for in that game, but, but in a very unexpected way, in a way that I thought all my other opponents, like, well, I... I should be placing the robber on them. I should try to be stealing from them. When in actuality, uh, she, she was the one who, who was winning. She was the one who had the best uh, strategy. And, and in a similar way, we're going to see today that Jesus' ministry produces the expected incredible results, but in an unexpected way. And you might think, uh, he's just ripping off the title of this whole series, like, he must not have had any good ideas uh, this week of what, what to talk about. Okay, maybe, maybe true, but maybe we titled it that way because we believe that's what Jesus teaches in the Gospel of Matthew. So you, you, can, you can find out. And, and Jesus titles this parable the parable of the sower, which lends toward the assumption that 
that the sower is the focus. And what we're going to see is that that is partially true and, uh, and partially not. So as we work through our way through this parable, we have to understand that the typical sower in this time and culture was a subsistence farmer with a limited plot of land uh, far from the mega farms, huge machinery well, we see today. He has a bag over his shoulder, is scattering seed by hand. And as, as we come to the first part here, it's ironic that the sower is not identified and not even identified in Jesus' explanation. I believe the, the implication here is, is crystal clear, though. In the broader context, as we work our way through the parables in uh, this uh, chapter, you know, same chapter, different parable, parable of the weeds, which has a related message. Verse 37 says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And even without that, the implication here is clear that Jesus is the sower. However, g- given that our passage is, is mute and even explicitly identifying Jesus as a sower, it, it seems to be an improper reading to see the primary focus of the parable to be on the activity of the sower. As we work our way through this uh, parable, we see the lifetime of the various seeds uh, on the differing soils uh, becomes greater as we move toward the climax of the parable. One, one thing the text does not indicate is, to, is why some seed was sown on bad soil and, and how much seed it, it fell on those soils. And I believe those details are purposefully left out as uh, to not distract us from the true point of this parable. Jesus doesn't want us to miss his main purpose in telling this parable. N- nothing crazy about the agricultural conditions described in this parable as all four of these soils could occur in one uh, plot of land in the same field. Uh, th- this isn't a lesson in agriculture, but, but a story meant to teach a specific truth. And as we, as we come to the end of it, the, the, with the good soil and produced grain, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty, what are we, what are we to do with those yields? Are, are those crazy high? Uh, throughout church history, going way back, Jeremiah's, uh, said that uh, tenfold harvest was considered really good. So to be 30 or 60, 100 uh, seems miraculous. However, at the same time, there, there's evidence, depending on the type of grain in the Middle East in this time, that uh, seeds could produce uh, yields of this, of this nature, although that would be a very high yield. So, so why the high yields? This is an extraordinary harvest, but, but not in the realm of fantasy. The, the, even though as we work through the first uh, three uh, soils, if, if we left right there, you'd feel a sense of 
disappointment, discouragement. But, but with the ending, that disappointment vanishes with the results that other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And, and this fits with the expectation of a great harvest in the messianic age. And, and if we were left at verse 9, stopped right there, and launched into Todd's passage from last week, and Jesus never came back to explain this parable, you can see how everyone could have a different interpretation. This, this could be a lot of fun for the crowd. You can see how this truth has been hidden from them that, well, what does this mean? It, you know, I have a perspective, you have a perspective. But, but Jesus doesn't stop there. And in uh, verse 18, he picks up and he explains to his followers uh, the true meaning of this parable. And in our passage from last week, verses 10 through 17, uh, Jesus' explanation of the purpose of parables sets the tone for how these different soils are portrayed. The bad soils hear, but do not have true understanding. E- each type of soil receives, receives the same seed, but the soils evidence varying responsiveness to that seed, the seed which is the message of the kingdom. So today, what we're, we're going to work our way through the different soils. Uh, and as we do, I, I want to both apply this. So who is this in Jesus' day? But we don't want to just leave it there without translating it into our day. And, and this is going to be one of the weirdest outlines I've had. Maybe just for Dalen's last Sunday, I just had to, had to roll out a, a very a weird one, but instead of dividing it into two to four points or something of that nature, um, I'm going to point out a few truths on our journey through these uh, soils, and and then at the end, we'll arrive at the the main point, the main purpose that Jesus is uh, telling this parable. The the truths that, that we find, it may not be the main point of the parable, but that doesn't make them any less valid. And as we've studied on Thursday nights, there's many aspects to Jesus' parables, many different things we can learn through an individual parable. So, so first of all, oh, we see in verse 18 that Jesus calls it the parable of the sower. So no matter how many times I thought about changing Jesus called it the parable of the sower. So we're, we're going to go with what Jesus calls it. And it does put emphasis here on the sower, the sower who is Jesus. And this parable is meant to help us understand Jesus' ministry. Seed goes out to differing types of, of soil. Jesus isn't discouraged by the bad soil which doesn't produce fruit. But, but the emphasis here we see lies in the differing types of soils as they help us better understand the ministry of Jesus. And again, the, the seed he sows is the word of the kingdom. 
And he, even at this early point, we cannot escape the truth that Jesus is the sower who by extension calls us to join him in his mission and sow kingdom seed. So if you, you are a follower of Jesus here today, are you doing that? It, it doesn't take a PhD, master's degree, bachelor's degree, I mean, even a high school diploma to understand this. That, but I am 100% sure that no harvest will come if no seed is sown. I mean, that, that, it's obvious, like, why is he even saying that? Like, that very obvious truth makes perfect sense in agricultural terms and sounds almost ridiculous to have to even say. But, but are we applying that in our attitude toward mission? Are, are, are we waiting for a stranger to show up at your doorstep? And ask how to become a Christian? Which, by the way, God can absolutely do that. Our God is in absolute sovereign control. He's shown over and over again, when we least expect it, that he's the one who's drawing people to himself. He can do whatever he so desires. And he many times has done absolutely miraculous, out of the blue, people showing up. We see this uh, throughout Scripture. Look, look at the conversion of uh, Saul turned Apostle Paul and God's work there. But he typically chooses to use means. And, th- and that means is gospel seed, is us sowing gospel seed Evaluate your life. Are, are you characterized but as one who is sowing gospel seed? As a church, we want to be diligently sowing seed in our neighborhood. You see, I, I don't know what will become of seed sown at various outreaches. I, I don't know what will become of seed sown in our services, seed sown in a community group. I don't know what will become of seed sown in your witnessing to a coworker, your helping a neighbor and trying to uh, evangelize, be a witness through that. But I do know this, that if we do not sow seed, those seeds won't grow. Very, very basic truth, but we cannot escape it. Now, let's look at the, the four different uh, soils. First of all, the seed sown along the path. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So th- this uh, here's the, the message of the kingdom. This person, but doesn't understand it. Understanding here goes far beyond just mental assent to the meaning of the kingdom here. And Matthew identifies Satan as the evil one. That's the same designation 
We saw earlier in, in this gospel, in the Lord's Prayer, uh, that we, uh, as uh, Jesus' followers, should be praying for deliverance uh, from evil. It's a substantive there. From the evil one. The evil one is pictured as a bird snatching seed along the path. Now, most of us don't have too many qualms with birds. Like, Is anyone here throwing rocks at birds, upset at birds, unless you're a dog chasing birds? They seem pretty harmless. And most of us, the most traumatic story you might have of a bird is if it poops on you, like, ah, you know, makes it makes a funny story, not too funny in the moment when it happens. But that really isn't all that uh, devastating of an experience. But the things were a little different in Jesus' day. Uh, Jewish tradition frequently identified birds with demonic activity, especially as one nears the end of the age. So it's not surprising to see the evil one, Satan himself, pictured as a bird snatching up the seed. And we can't miss the truth here that Satan is alive and actively fighting against Jesus and against people responding in faith to the gospel. So you ask, well, what is your opinion here at Trinity Church concerning Satan? Well, we don't like him, okay? He's not on our team. We're not fans of him. We believe he, he is real and he is the enemy of Jesus. He hates the gospel message and we are in spiritual warfare against him. And this should change how we live. That there is an unseen battle going on for people's souls. That this should drive us to prayer knowing that it isn't just what we see. It isn't just the physical, a physical battle going on. That there is an unseen spiritual warfare that Satan, his minions hate God. They hate the gospel witness. Satan has blinded people's eyes. Satan has covered people's ears. But the good news is that Jesus is more powerful than the evil one. And we can rest in him. We can rest in his authority. So off from Satan back to the seed that falls on the path. Who is this in Jesus' day? Well, this seems to describe that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they just don't get Jesus' kingdom because they have far different expectations. There is no reception to Jesus' message. Who is this in our day? Well, th- this is people who, who may have heard about Jesus. They, they may know a lot of Bible facts, may do quite well at Bible trivia, but, but are wholly uninterested in Jesus and maybe openly antagonistic towards him. That They have no understanding, though they may know things about Jesus, they have no understanding of why would I ever want, why would I ever need this Jesus. And next we go to the seed sown on the rocky ground. As for, the seed, as for what was sown 
on rocky ground. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So he receives the message with joy. And and note that this uh, seed sown on the rocky ground along with the next soil, there's no comment on understanding uh, like there was on the first and we'll see in the last soil. You could say there was slightly more understanding than the first soil, which is completely lacking it. But at the end of the day, there's no true understanding or true understanding with one's heart as was described in verse 15. Gets it a little bit. Why? Because a joy is the right response to the gospel message. But joy without understanding, without commitment, does not endure. Trouble and persecution because of the message of the kingdom results in collapse under that pressure. So, so who is this in Jesus' day? Well, this is often the crowds. As it's not too difficult to get uh, pumped up about a, a Messiah who's going around healing people, doing all these great deeds. It, it's, it's not too difficult to, to listen to him, to be intrigued. But when trial, persecution, which in this gospel, ironically, primarily comes from the religious leaders, it's revealed that there's no root and these crowds scatter. Who, who, who is this in our day? Well, this, this may be many who've had a conversion experience, quote-unquote. Maybe something like went to camp, you know, got fired up about Jesus and, you know, wasn't too excited about this, you know, fiery pit of eternal torture and the alternative sounds, sounds more, uh, more appealing. Jesus seems exciting, but when the novelty wears off, the struggles uh, of life come full force at that person, the person is tapping out and believes that he or she is signing up for something significantly different than actually is. And we can't miss the truth that followers of Jesus should expect tribulation and persecution. Why? Well, we serve a Savior who already in this gospel has experienced a lot of persecution. And I don't have a problem previewing it because Jesus previews it many times. He's ultimately headed to the cross to be brutally murdered. So should we expect that our experience following this Jesus should not be in any way like his? If the world hated Jesus, do you think it's going to love us if we are following Jesus? It's all about what you signed up for. If if you're calling people to come to Jesus and experience 
your best life now devoid of trouble, of suffering, of persecution, well, that person's not going to last when persecution, trial comes because of the gospel. And instead, we call people to experience great and true joy so powerful that the suffering and persecution that we know is coming, that suffering and persecution will pale in comparison with this joy found in Jesus. And, and if we know it is coming because we've accepted this Jesus and we know that we're going to end up like him. If Jesus was persecuted, well, as a follower of Jesus, I should expect something of that nature. We shouldn't be as surprised when it actually arrives. See the seed sown among the thorns. Uh, verse 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So th this soil it is good and it's, it's a little closer to the true understanding than the last soil. The, the problem it, here is what is growing and next to the good seed. The, the world offers cares and delight. And this, this has already come up in Matthew's gospel in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember back to uh, chapter 6, the deceitfulness of riches. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And he goes on to say, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The cares of the world, same chapter, chapter 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not more valuable? Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But first... But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So who, who is this 
the a soil with thorns. Who is this in Jesus' day? Well, we'll remember back to chapter 8, couple, a few chapters ago. Now, now when Jesus saw a large crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side of the lake. Then, remember the story, an expert in the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have dens and birds in the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Who is this in our day? Well, this is a lot of people who've made a profession of faith, who've even been baptized. They, they know more about what they were signing up for than the previous soil. However, they are looking to use Jesus, and he is not their chief delight. So when the Bible says something, the Bible says something like that I can't have sex with a certain person that I want to. This, this person is, is faced with a choice. Am I going to go with what the Bible says? And what Jesus says? Or am I going to do what I want to do? When work or hobby calls for first priority of time and allegiance, the choice is between do I love Jesus more or do I love that other thing more? Who is going to rule my life? And we cannot escape the truth that Jesus requires undivided allegiance. And that makes it impossible to have Jesus and just tack him on to whatever you're already doing in your life. Money isn't a bad thing. Riches are not inherently evil. But it's the love of money. The temptation, whether you have a little money or a lot of it, the, the deceitfulness of riches it may, may lead someone who is poor to love money and willing to do whatever it takes to get more of it. Or in a similar way, to a person who is rich, having an insatiable desire for more of it and trusting in the security and pleasures that money can bring and buy. That the cares of this world are a normal thing. We have many things which must be done for basic survival and even more for flourishing. The question becomes whether we trust our almighty God to provide for our needs and demonstrate his sovereignty over all our cares or or if we trust ourselves to, to figure it all out. Jesus requires undivided allegiance. And lastly, we we come to the seed sown on good soil. Jesus explains it this way. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. Get that. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another another 30. So this soil is finally matched 
with understanding. And there is significant fruit. There is great fruit. These are the followers of Jesus headed by the 12 disciples. So, so, so what is the, the main truth we should take away from this parable? Is it to sow seed like Jesus? Yeah, that, that, there's truth there. Is it to not be one of the three bad soils? Ab- absolutely. That, that, that's, that's true. To have a heart of the good soil? Well, sure. But, but the primary purpose in Jesus telling this parable is actually not exhortation, but explanation. Let me elaborate. It, it is answering the question that has been brought to the, the front and center by the last couple of chapters. And the question is this, is why is Israel, particularly corporate Israel, not embracing their Messiah? Actually, all these parables in this chapter are going to, in some way, concern the reception of Jesus. And yes, the disciples are following him, made up of fishermen, people like Matthew, the tax collector. And immediately before this, at the end of chapter 12, we remember that Jesus declared his disciples to be his true family. But, but the religious elite, the Pharisees in particular, were adamantly opposed to Jesus. And this expectation that when the Messiah would come, this eschatological expectation is the embrace of God's people Israel, seeing their Messiah and running to him. But here is Jesus, the Messiah. And the religious leaders, as we saw in the last chapter are accusing him of teaming up with Satan. So is, is the problem with God? Is it the problem with God's Messiah? And, and this parable unpacks that and unpacks the different responses uh, to Jesus. That this ministry of Jesus produces expected incredible results, but in an unexpected way. Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of heaven. The problem wasn't Jesus. The problem wasn't Jesus' message. The problem wasn't even Jesus' followers proclaiming his message. The problem was the people who hear it. The disciples were looking for this mass conversion of people joining them, following this Jesus. Yes, there were crowds, but the majority of these crowds were curious. They they were intrigued, but, but they weren't joining in faith in this Jesus. And then there were the religious leaders of Israel, again, led by the Pharisees. The disciples would have felt validated if these religious elite would would join them, would recognize Jesus as the Messiah. He is proclaiming himself to be. And and the disciples are starting to kind of get it a little bit. But, but, But no. No, they are 
adamantly opposed to this Jesus. And, and after hearing of the first three soils, the amazing part isn't that some fail to produce fruit. We, we found that there are a bunch of ways that, like, well, you made it past, you know, Satan, the bird, then come and uh, steal, eat the seed. You, you know, you made it past the rocky ground. Like, there's many different ways for this seed to not produce or fruit. The amazing part is that some actually do produce fruit and that when they do, there's abundant fruit. This is meant to reorient our expectations. You, you see, if I'm looking at the world around me and I'm dumbfounded as to why people don't love Jesus and I stay there, I, I'm probably going to fall into depression and likely close myself up to activities like engaging in prayer and mission, given the seeming worthlessness of such activities. But, but if I look at the world around me, and yes, I'm burdened for them, and, and I don't see it because their eyes are not opened, but, but if I look at them, and I'm shocked that anyone is coming to Jesus, I won't be drawn to despair, but to praise, to prayer, to continued diligence in mission. Uh, Yes, there are bad soils out there, uh, which are not receptive to the gospel message. And and this parable isn't saying that a person can't become a, a different soil. But the good news is that there is good soil. Praise the Lord that some are responding in faith and repentance. And there is an abundant harvest. You see, everyone who does respond to the gospel message is abundant fruit. It is a miracle. Because we aren't coming to Jesus on our own. No one naturally seeks Jesus. And and that should be encouraging to us as a church. Maybe you're like me and you'd love to see more people in our neighborhood meet Jesus, embrace him, worship Jesus. You know, maybe you'd love to see more people come to our outreaches and experience who he is. Maybe you'd love to see friends, coworkers, neighbors submit to Jesus in their lives. And you're tempted toward discouragement because that's not exactly your experience. Well, I have good news for you today. A, the problem is not Jesus. The problem isn't Jesus' message. It is more than powerful enough, even with people like you and I who are far from perfect messengers. I have good news that Jesus is drawing some people to himself. Every time someone comes to faith in Jesus, it is abundant fruit. It is a miracle. Because on our own, we are not looking for 
Jesus. He is the one who came seeking us. And on our own, we are all bad soil for Jesus' message. That, that, that should give us hope as we go throughout our week. Give us hope to press on and, and continue in faithfulness, sharing the gospel, praying that others would respond to this Jesus. Do you believe that Jesus is bringing in a great harvest even when you don't see it? Do you trust that Jesus is the one who's determining the harvest? And he does promise it'll be great, whether it's 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. And are you celebrating the glimpses you get at what Jesus is doing? See, we, we don't see it all, but when we get small little glimpses as to how God is working, wow, that person is you know, did come to faith. That person is a lot different than he or she was a month ago, was two months ago, was five years ago. Everyone who Jesus brings out of darkness into light is a miracle, is a great harvest. And that includes you and I, if we are Christians here today. And we get to celebrate that together. Well, let's, let's pray to our God who is the Lord of the harvest.